your Bibles to Matthew, New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1. We're going to start here and we'll make our way around a few different places this morning. Matthew chapter 1. If you'll stand with us this morning, we're going to begin Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Solomon. Solomon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah. Abijah the father of Asa. Asa the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram. Jehoram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Joseph, Joseph the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihu, Abihu the father of Eliakim. Eliakim the father of Hazor, Hazor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihu, Elihu the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Thank you, Nancy. How many of you zoned out during that? Be honest with me. All right. Some of you are checking your fantasy football ahead of time, and I understand that. We're praying for the Buffalo Bills. I understand that as well. well how many of you come to a section like this in Scripture, and really you just either don't read it all or skip it all together? Because you feel like this is reference material. Um, but maybe the least you could do is those of you who are, we have a few in our midst this morning who are pregnant, you could look for some baby names in here. <laughs> Aminadab, or Hezron, or Shealtiel. It's guaranteed to make your kids hate you forever if you use any of those names. So most of us are not into genealogy, certainly it's someone else's genealogy. Uh, my background is that in 1770, a man named Jacob Wilson settled in Sardinia, New York. And basically, we do have the lineage of genealogy until about 2000. So that's 230 years the Wilsons resided in Sardinia, New York. We've basically that whole time. So our, like, the lineage is, is there, but now all of a sudden we're kind of going into this new phase where people have dispersed everywhere. What has, been our family land and, and friends of family and all this different thing that's just kind of been built there in that Delavan Arcade area is now in the early 2000s just kind of spread all over the place. And so I would definitely see 
uh, our next generation having to do a lot more work, whether it's through one of those websites or whatever, to be able to trace our lineage in the next uh, 50 years or 100 years. And so some of you really get excited about that, going back and learning about your lineage. There's, there's television programs about this. Uh, some of you uh, are excited about your own family, but the idea of researching someone else's family is kind of less than exciting. So why would you start the New Testament after 400 years of silence with a snooze fest, the genealogy of Jesus Christ? Well, the bottom line is, is if you're going to go look at that, it would be odd for him to do this, but really the genealogy here has everything you need to know about Christianity. This genealogy, the New Testament starting in this way. So Tim Keller says, the gospel is not good advice. The gospel is the good news. And so in our Bibles, we have Matthew opening up the four gospels. And we start this way with, with Matthew's rendition of the genealogy. Why is it important? Well, most stories would start out, fairy tale would start out, well, once upon a time. Or in a galaxy far away. But that's not the way it would be Matthew. You see, there's something different about it. He's, what he's saying is, what I'm about to tell you is actually happening in time and in space. It is documented. It is this actual historic line that is being written out here. It's very important for us to see. Christianity's most important feature, you need to understand, is that it is historically accurate. Because it's really what it's set up is not just the principles that Jesus taught us, but the actual person of Jesus Christ who lived and walked the earth. See, most religion, if you look at it, would pull back the layers. The basis of that religion can still stand up. The moral teachings or the good ideas that were being presented would, would stand up whether or not that leader or that teacher Alive. For instance, the principles of Buddhism don't depend on Buddha being an actual person. The concepts of Buddhism is more about uh, Buddha being the mouthpiece of these concepts. The same thing for Islam. Islam is a pattern for how Allah wants us to live. Muhammad was just the prophet who told us all about that. Muslims, of course, will tell you that he actually is a real, actual person. But the, the principles or the teachings of Islam are not dependent on whether Muhammad can be documented. It is not the case with Christianity. Christianity depends on a set of events that actually took time in place and in history because the core of Christianity is not what Jesus taught us to do, but what he would do for us. So for those of you and I've had people come and ask me this or tell me this, they read it on the internet or they got an email that said, um, did, did you know that realize the genealogy that I just read or the documentation that we're going to work our way through over the next number of months does not ever say December 25th. We do celebrate this time of year. It is more likely that it was earlier in the fall, that the weather was not quite this cold or the timing of that. So it's something that's on our calendar that we celebrate in this way. I want you to understand that the tradition of Christmas and the documentation for historical events are not in conflict understand that this morning. The Christ that we serve, Christianity that we follow, is not built upon once upon a time. No, Matthew starts this way. Look at verse 17. Let me read it again. Thus, 
There were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David. There were 14 from David to the exile of Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Messiah meaning the promised deliverer. So if we really want to look at the long story short, which is where we've been a number of months, and as that music kind of starts each week, I hope that you kind of follow through that pattern again of where we've been and where we're headed. So where we've been is we started in creation in September, how it all began. And then we talked about the fall, how it all fell apart, how sin entered the conversation. And then we moved to the New Testament. We talked about redemption, of how it all turned around, how Jesus walking the earth. And then now we're going to turn into this Act 4, the restoration of how it will all never end. And so as we're making this turn, as we start into this kind of new territory when it comes to Scripture, we need to ask the question, as many of you probably are this morning, why on earth would you be in the book of Revelation at Christmas? That's understandable. Let me talk you through some of our thinking behind it. Because C.S. Lewis says, if Christianity only needs one more bit of good advice, then Christianity is of no importance. If Christianity is all about good advice, then Christianity at the end of the day is of no importance. If it's merely a set of teachings to be followed, then it's a mistake. But if Jesus is the Messiah, if the one we follow is the Messiah, if Jesus is the promised deliverer. If Jesus is the one he says he is, then he is coming back to restore his people. It's incredibly important for us to take the time to look at that and to be able to process this long story of where we fit into the story. Truth be told, I'm a bit hesitant to be diving into Revelation. And the bottom line, and it is Revelation, not Revelations. I make that mistake often, so if you catch me, just wave your arm in the air. Well, Revelation is actually one of the books that most congregations want to be taught from the pulpit because they don't understand it. And in the same way, most pastors do not want to preach Revelation because we don't understand it. And there's this, this really kind of complex thing that is going on, so we're going to need to be able to look at that. So if you're just going to sit down, can you tell just to sit down and start reading if you're in your quiet time in the morning, you're reading through Revelation, just kind of making your way through it, you come across some type of apocalyptic, elliptic monster, you go, how am I going to apply this to my life today? It's challenging. Like, you gotta, we get that. We understand that. We want to be able to look at that. So, others of you may not have read Revelation because it's just kind of spooky, right? It's, it's different, like, you've read through certain passages, we'll be going through some of them uh, over the next few weeks, and, and if you're not careful, you're, you're sleeping with the lights on, uh, your eyes are wide open, and you've got a helmet, you know, like, you're just not sure what the next thing is going to happen, because it kind of freaks you out. So let's try to get to the basics, let's talk about the basics of this book. We're going to try to work our way through it, but keep in mind the big picture, the long story, and I'll do the best I can to bring you back to that again. Jesus restoring us to himself. Here's the big picture. The book of Revelation is a series of apocalyptic visions. Apocalyptic meaning end times. Uh, these visions about the end times. And there's this, this, this type of literature, there's a predominant use of symbols. 
and, and uh, numbers. There's, it was a type of literature that the Jews would use to be able to talk about the end times. And so you're going to see a lot of symbolic things and these numbers and what do they mean and how do they work. And um, for instance, today we'll be talking about the number seven and the perfectness of the number seven. It is also filled with prophetic announcements. Prophetic announcements. The kingdom age of God has come is the overarching announcement that is here. And it will soon be consummated. It is, it is coming. It is at our doorstep is being said again and again and again. These announcements that will come. But certainly don't miss this. It is written as a congregational letter. It is written as a congregational letter from Christ through an angel to the Apostle John for the church. So as we've been following this long story, we started again in creation and made our way through. And last week we talked about the church. God has breathed life into his church. He's ascended into heaven and now the church is going to grow and to thrive. And now they're under intense persecution in that first century. And so this letter is written specifically to the church. As we follow that narrative, the church has a response to what is going on. And we'll see that ripple effect is larger than just the first century Christians. I'm going to transition there for a moment, just asking this question. Have you ever burnt yourself with a glue gun? My grandmother passed away a few years ago. But one of the things we talked about at her funeral was her love of the glue gun. She felt like every problem could be solved with a little duct tape and a glue gun. And she would, she lived through the Great Depression, she saved all kinds of pieces and parts of everything, and she would just glue them all together all the time. And, and uh, one of the things she did with us as kids is we had, uh, we had pictures of me and my next youngest sister. Um, I had a Pepsi hat and she had a Coca-Cola hat that my grandmother, uh, she glued these little bells on the hats. And I didn't realize, she said, leave the hats at the house so every time you come over, you can be Pepsi-Cola and Coca-Cola. Did not realize, it's a farm, it's a big place where we grew up, that she wanted us to put on that hat and put it on and run around so that the bell would ring the whole time that we were running around so she had an idea of what we were getting into. She said, and, and if that bell fell off, we'd bring it to her and she'd hot glue it back on the hat. Have you ever burnt yourself with a hot glue gun? It's a bad burn because it sticks and there's nothing you can do until it cools off enough to be able to peel it away. And while it's burning you and singeing you, you just have to wait. Because if you touch it with the other hand, now that hand, and now you're stringing wounds back and forth between your two hands. So imagine, if you will, with me, your entire body covered with hot glue. John, the friend of Jesus, this is the type of persecution that he underwent. They, they, did not, they could not stop him about talking about Jesus. And so they tried to boil him alive. They painfully put him there on this island of Patmos to die. They exiled him there after they could not figure out how to kill him or what the best way to persecute him would be. Eventually they stuck him out here on this island to die. Patmos, where the book of Revelation is written, is a rugged place. It's basically a rock in the middle of the ocean. And if you've ever uh, made your way over to, to the promised land, the holy land, then you can take trips out to where they believe this island is, uh, even to the cave where they believe that he 
uh, wrote down the letter that we have uh, to, in Revelation. It's about six miles by ten miles, and by a modern-day motorboat, it would take a few hours of tossing and turning and throwing up overboard. Like, I don't understand or know how long it would take with a, a ship of the first century, but it would be a long, brutal trip. There's very little vegetation on the island because the storms are severe in that area, and everything basically gets washed off, and he was left there to die. So at the high points of this island is a, is a cave that, and again, in the history and the tradition would say that that's that cave is where John wrote this letter. This letter where Jesus showed up and met with him. Jesus was his best friend. When you read the other books that John penned, you see him as the disciple whom Jesus loved. When Jesus was preaching and teaching and, and casting out demons, John was there because in addition to being one of the 12 disciples, he was this inner circle of James and John and Peter. These three men had privileged access to Jesus. Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the death. He was there. When Jesus was transfigured, John was there. When Jesus was being crucified, he says, take care of my mother, John. Take care of my mother. John's story is not just one to be admired, but to be imitated. That we would love Jesus in this way. That we would serve Jesus. That we would follow Jesus. That God could use us to make the name of Christ known. So John, because he's being persecuted and moved around and imprisoned and put on this island, he was leading multiple churches in that area and sending them letters. That's why we have the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John of, of showing them how to live this faith out. He was a, a church planter of the 1st century. But if you have your notes with you this morning, this white sheet of paper in your bulletin, this book is not about John. This book is about Jesus and the revelation of Jesus. Revelation is all about the revealing of Jesus Christ. So if you still have your Bibles out, you turn over to the book of Revelation. Book of Revelation 1, verse 1. It's page 1286 if you're using that Pew Bible in front of you. The New International Version. I'm going to read you the first two verses here of what John has to say about the revealing of Jesus Christ. Verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. This book, this, this opening passage is all about revealing Jesus Christ. So now as we get here, as we get to open, the first three chapters you need to know are about the things that happened around the first century. That's what today's message will be, around the things that happened in the first century. The rest of the book, chapters 4 through 22, are primarily about future events. Now, this book has been studied and restudied and, and discussed multiple times, and so I would be remiss to tell you that that's not what everyone looks at this book to say. So there's actually four different interpretations of how the book of Revelation is laid out. There's the Preterists. They believe that, that uh, the book was fulfilled the first few centuries of Christianity. 
That everything that we read in Revelations has already uh, been fulfilled. There's the historicists, uh, and they look at this book and they see that Revelation is being played out in Western Christian history. And then that's where they can see all of the pieces of Revelation worked out. There's a futurist. I would fall into this camp. They are largely that chapters 4 through 22, as I just said, that these chapters are still to be fulfilled. They are still awaiting fulfillment. They are in the future. And then there's the idealist approach. The idealist looks at this book and they feel like everything is being fulfilled symbolically through the history of the church. And so that, yes, it is a book full of symbols, but there is that everything uh, is symbolic and there's not any uh, actual historical events that need to be determined. So as I said, I'm approaching this from a futurist to say the first three chapters are dealing with the first century Christianity and after that everything fast forwards into being fulfilled in the future. Abraham Lincoln once said, the best thing about the future is that it only comes one day at a time. So as we look at this book and if you look at this passage, uh, today we're going to be dealing with things that happened in the first century. And so next week, another time, one day at a time, I'm digging into it all week again uh, this week about what will be happening in the future. But let's just deal right now, one day at a time, with what is going on here in the first three chapters of what happened in the first century. We scroll down to verse 7. Verse 7. Revelation 1, verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. If you're following along in your bulletin, we've got that white sheet. There's three fillings I want to give you this morning. First, that you will look to the past. Jesus is the creator of God. I hope that this rather quick, and we understand that book, moving through the book of the Bible, all that's happened is that we see that Jesus is the creator of God. That connects to the story as, we, as it's weaved its way through. Don't miss the fact that he is, he was, and will be the one to come, it says here. He is the creator of God. Look to the present, secondly. Jesus is the conquering Savior. And he is telling us to John in the present who was there with him when he conquered the grave. John was there, was able to touch him, put his hands on his side if he chose. John was there, his close friend, and he saw him as a conquering Savior. But yes, we too can see him as our conquering Savior. Thirdly, look to the future. Jesus is the coming King. Jesus is the coming King. So John is there. He's all alone, likely, in this cave at the top of Patmos. He is an elderly man. Based on the timeline of when these books were written, we would see he's getting very close to 100 years old. So he's got all of these wounds. He's in a pretty dark place, in a rough situation. And Jesus shows up. And let's just to step back and realize what Jesus does not talk about. When Jesus shows up on the scene, he does not say, John, how are you feeling? John, what can I do for you? John, how can I encourage you? John, what's it like to be boiled? These are not the questions that Jesus comes to with John. That's not the conversation. 
But for many of us, that's actually what we do. We see Jesus as our personal therapist. Jesus is going to sit there and listen to me while I tell him all of the trials and troubles, troubles that I went through this day. He's going to nod and smile and take a few notes, give a prescription, so that my whole life is going to be perfectly fine and get better. Not so. Not the case with his dear friend, John. That is not how he approaches this conversation. John is suffering. John is hurting. And do you know that John didn't get any of those from Jesus? John did not get a bunch of ways that he could make his life better. What did Jesus want to talk to John about? His church. His church. John immediately did. He redirected the focus of John on all that he was going through. And he said, let's look at and talk about the church. As we tie together this long story short and realize what Jesus did when he died on the cross for your sins and for mine and started and piloted and set up the mission of the church. This is what Jesus cared and cares about most passionately. The church and its responsibility, who is left that still needs to meet Jesus, who is hurting, who is suffering, who can we help, who can we serve, where can we grow? These are the questions. How can we mature? These are the questions that Jesus is asking the church. He's asking you and me this morning. So let's look. Revelation chapter 1, beginning verse 9. The words from Christ to a church at war. Words of Christ to a church at war. We cannot miss the fact that that first generation church was under intense persecution. Rome had fallen, and in that process, the church was scattered in all directions. What does Jesus say to the church? Verse 9. I, John, your brother companion, companion in what? The suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. I was on the island of Patmos because the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Why was he there? Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He could not stop talking about Jesus until they finally exiled him to an island. Number 10. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a voice, a loud voice like a trumpet. Which said, you ever been around someone who's a loud voice like a trumpet? There's a few of you in this room that have those voices, and you don't realize that you have those voices. And you come up behind somebody and say, hey! This was even more of that. Even more than Mark could possibly muster. <laughs> hey! Verse 10. On the Lord's day, of the Spirit, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said... Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These are seven existing churches in that area that John was pastoring, that John was, was writing to, that John was well aware of. This is what Jesus wanted to talk to, was the church. Fast forward, verse 17. John's response, when I saw him, I fell at his feet on stone dead. And he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death 
Hades. He had beaten death right there for what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. This verse 19 is actually a framework for the way the rest of the book will lay out. As you fill in this morning, this morning, what you have seen, Jesus is present among us. What you have seen, Jesus is present among us. Secondly, what is now? Jesus has a purpose for us. And what will take place later, Jesus will protect us. Jesus is present among us. He has a purpose for us. And Jesus will protect us. And so what happens here, and I'm going to briefly, I'm going to move through it quite quickly this morning, is he then has a personalized letter for each of these seven churches. We're not actually going to go through all seven of them this morning. There's some unique characteristics as I was looking at it this week and kind of studying. There's only two of the seven churches. If you were here about two years ago, we, we did a sermon series on the seven churches. We spent seven weeks here. But there is seven churches, and only two get kudos from Jesus. There's no criticism. The church at Smyrna, the church at Philadelphia, these two churches were faithfully serving the Lord, and he pats them on the back. And then there's only one church that is just criticism, has nothing else, there's nothing positive to say about that one church. That's the church at Laodicea. But the other four, the ones I'm going to breeze through this morning pretty quickly, the other four churches get mixed reviews. God approves of some of the things that they are doing, and he disapproves of some of the others. Uh, the churches at Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis. Why I focus there this morning? Well, because I believe that for the most part, uh, we are not a church, or we as a people don't have everything together. We are not the perfect church. Also, I do not believe that we're doing everything wrong as a church. As a society, we're not doing everything, absolutely everything wrong. And so actually where we need to dive in is where this confusion, this mix of what God has told us to do and how we are taking steps in the right direction, but at the same time we're trying to keep our toe in the wrong direction. And it's in this balance we get confused and you'll see that Jesus has actually pretty harsh words for trying to live in that balance. In Jesus' ministry, he says you cannot serve both God and man. You cannot make that distinction work. And so there are merciful warnings here in these four churches we're going to focus on for the church to wake up. There is no perfect church. We are not the perfect church. So what are the four churches we're going to focus on? Ephesus first. Ephesus. This is in Revelation 2, beginning in verse 2. He says to Ephesus, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. Here's the bottom line of Ephesus. They were all head and no heart. They were all head and no heart. What do I mean by that? That they understood what was being taught. They, they were teaching and they were dealing with false teachers. They were dealing with wrongdoings in the church. But there was no love in what they were doing. They were all head 
and no harm. They had lost their first love. How many of you have been serving Jesus for years? And you've lost that first love. You've lost the spark of the day that you first met Jesus Christ. Repent. Consider how far you have fallen, Jesus says. Repent and do the things you did at first. Secondly, Pergamum. Pergamum. This is beginning in verse 13 of chapter 2. I know where you live. That's not a good feeling. Jesus says that. <laughs> you realize he doesn't know where you live, right? But man, to see it in writing, oh man. I know where you live. And then see what he defines it as, where Satan has his throne. Now specifically in Pergamum, that was because there was a temple there where there was a lot of vile and evil things going on. Here we go, continue on. Yet you remain true to my name. So that's good. You did not renounce your faith in me, nor even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, again, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There's some of you who hold to the teachings of Balaam who taught Balaam to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. So in the midst of fighting back this time, it's this evil city that they were in. And doing the right things, they were being pulled away. They were being pulled away in which ways? Through sexual immorality and food sacrifice to idols. Idol worship, sexual immorality. Is that not something that we're dealing with in our culture today? Doing many of the right things. Focus on, on living a life of the gospel, yet being pulled away, being distracted by these simple things. Power, prestige, sexual immorality, these things. All around us. Just look at the news over the last few weeks. This is real to us. So what Pergamum had was good deeds. They were doing some of the right things, but their doctrine was bad. They were allowing uh, this this teaching to, towards Baal, towards Balaam, that had been distracting the Israelites for so long to pull them away once again. Thirdly, fire tire. Verse nineteen. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance. That you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into what? There is again, sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. We see a similar thing here. But this time, what we see in Thyatira is not only that we misled, but really what is the sin? It's the sin of tolerance. The sin of tolerance. They are not willing to confront the issue that is right there, right in front of them. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, it says here. Her teaching, she's misleading my servants. And look, she's leading them to a dark, dark place. Yet they continue to tolerate this idea of tolerance, allowing things to happen so that there's no confrontation. How dangerous that really is. Fourthly, Sardis. This is chapter 3, beginning in verse 2. Wake up, he says. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God. Remember, therefore, what you have received, what you have heard. Hold fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what time I will come to you yet. This is so, first this is showing the negative, and then here's the positive. Yet there is a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in 
white, for they are worthy. There are a few of you who got not gotten mixed up in this filth, in this mess. Their clothes are still clean. They have stopped carrying Sardis has. They stopped carrying. They become apathetic. They have stopped trying. Says the work is unfinished. You're right there, but then you gave up. I'll tell you, if you walk with other believers for so many times that you, you want to shout this to someone, or someone wants to shout it to you, it says you're on the right track, you're moving forward, you're taking the right steps, and then you just quit. What on earth are you doing? And so as we go through those four, this mixed bag, these four churches that have this mixed bag, if you feel a twinge or some type of uh, connection to these descriptions is because we are still making the same mistakes. We still live in a world that's not very different from first century Christianity when it comes to sin. Sure, the context has changed tremendously. The Jewish culture in which this was being written to is iconically different from what we learn and understand to be our culture today. Yet sin is still sin. And we are still making the same mistakes. And we are still a people who are swayed away by the God from the gospel, by the things of this world. We are swayed away by sexual immorality, by power, by prestige. We are swayed away by tolerance. We are swayed away by weak teaching or the converse of that. A fundamentalism will sway us away. We are swayed away by apathy. And yes, we are even swayed away by doing good deeds. If we do enough good things, then God will love me. That is not So where is the hope for us and for our church and for the church of today? Here's the point. In these two chapters, Jesus did not write any of these churches off. Even the most vile church, we had nothing good to say about them. He did not write them off. He said, there's a day coming where I might need to write them off. Repent before that comes. And then there will be this war on them with the sword of his mouth. Uh, you'll come against them like a thief. You will bring them into sickness. If necessary, he will take away their candlestick. That symbolic uh, demonstration of their existence, that that flame is still burning. He said, I will even take that away. But not yet, he says. There is time to repent. <coughs> so what you have seen is that Jesus is present among us. What is now that Jesus has a purpose for us. The church was meant to do so much more. We were meant to do so much more. And what will take place later as we go into the further chapters of this book, as we, as we study deeper, we need to remember that Jesus will protect us through all that comes. So how does this come back to Christmas? Go back again to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Why talk about this at Christmas? Why does this matter? first week of Advent, about the coming king. Why does this matter? Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Here's your feeling. The long story short is Emmanuel. Emmanuel. In case you're wondering, it's correct to spell it with an E or an I. So those of you who are spell checkers, you write both ways. Christ was born to save all mankind. Christ was born to save all mankind. That is the hope that we have 
That's why we look at the book of Revelation and see Jesus coming and demonstrating himself and showing himself as the mighty conqueror, the victor, the king. That is what we need to see. Verse 18. Verse 18. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she found that she was pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph was her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. He loved her dearly. He did not want to make a disgraceful presence in her. Verse 20, after you consider this, the angel of the Lord appeared in the dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will do what? Save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Verse 23, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is why the genealogy matters. This is why connecting it to history matters. It's not a fairy tale. It happened and is happening that Jesus is here, God with us. What is our response to this? It should be the same as John. We should fall down in worship. And that's what you see in the nativity scene. Our response is clear to fall down before the indescribable Christ. John is trying to pen down the words of Revelation just to try to describe what he is seeing, the incredible Christ who is standing before him. The gulf of grandeur and glory that we could never, ever write down, be able to, to cross that gap between us and the perfect and holy God. All we can do is lie flat on our face before him. If you're not a believer today, if you're not a Christian, have much fear, it says. Have much fear. What do I mean by that? If you're not a Christian, if you're not called out to God for forgiveness to your sins through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, if you not turn from your sin and your rebellion, and, and you are still in that state, that fallen state before God without confessing Jesus as your Savior and your King, you have much to fear today. For one day, it could be today, we don't know the day or the time, He will return. And instead of facing Jesus as Savior, you will be facing Jesus as Judge. And you'll be standing before Him, afraid and confused and in judgment. So turn to Him. Turn from your sin today. Trust in Jesus who died on the cross for your sin. He rose from death of the grave. Victory over sin and death. He says, I have the keys to death and Hades in my hand. That is the Jesus that I want to follow. That is the Jesus that I want to serve. Trust in Jesus. Christians, have no fear. The book of Revelation should not make you afraid. You should be understanding and knowing, not dreading the day when you will see Jesus' face, but anticipating that day. Knowing that day that nothing will happen to you because of who He is, not because of who you are, but who He is, and that nothing will ever separate you from Him. So first, our response is to fall down in worship. Second, our response is to rise up 
as a witness. Jesus says, John, rise up, get up off of your face and write down these things. Write down what you have seen. Now, obviously, none of you are going to write one of the books of the Bible. We are to go and tell. We see the shepherds do that in a beautiful way in the Christmas story. Every Friday morning, I get to take my daughter, Maya, she's a kindergarten, and I drive her to school on Friday mornings. just gives us an opportunity to spend some time together. Friday is also, for kindergarten, show and tell day. It's a pretty big deal. I don't know if you've heard of it. So, Friday mornings, without fail, we're starting to get in the car, and all of a sudden, she's like, Dad, hit the brakes. I don't have anything to show or tell. And so, a few weeks ago, we took a mostly rotten pumpkin from the front yard and stuffed it in her backpack and sent her to school to show and tell about her pumpkin. But she was excited about it. She told all of her friends about all the work that she did with this pumpkin when it was fresh. <laughs> and every week she's got something that she wants about that she wants to hear about all the other kids and all the other stores and all the other things. And they, Listen, don't we have something better than a rotting pumpkin to talk about? Our response is to lie before him first and worship and then get up and tell everyone what we have seen and what we have heard. So part of us showing and telling, we'll transition this morning. If you're part of our community team, attendees, would you make your way down? Part of us showing and telling is this table of communion. Because we use communion in a way to be able to demonstrate. Jesus taught his disciples how to demonstrate, how to show and tell what he had done there on the cross. It's a time to remember his death on the cross. And Paul gave us instructions for how to properly observe this. And if it's your first time here, if you've been in the church for a long time, you understand that this is just a demonstration of a way that we can, we can articulate what happened there on the cross. And I don't know if we would have had the words to do it if Jesus had not shown us at the last supper. When we celebrate communion, we do so in a way that, that hands out the meal, hands out the meal, something that we each do every day, we eat a meal together. But Jesus, let me take that and let it be a reminder to you of what I did for you on the cross. Let it be a reminder to you that I had the power over this body when we talk about the blood and the bread, the, the, the body being symbolized by the bread, the blood by the juice that we drink. Let me demonstrate the power that I have over that. And maybe that will be a glimpse or a shadow for you to remember the power that I have over all other things. So this morning, we love you, Lord. We thank you. As you come into this time of communion, Lord, let us speak to our hearts. Let us symbolize what you did there at the cross. Let us be reminded by it. Let us check our hearts this morning. The scripture teaches us. Are we one of those churches? Are we people that reside in one of those churches that we get mixed reviews this morning? Wash us and let us be whiter than snow. There were some in that church whose garments were white before you, Lord. Let that be us this morning. We know we can't do that in our own power, but through you we can do that. So Lord, use this time people to put 
their sin on the offering table to God. This is filthy rags. This is worthless. But again, I know that you will make it pure. Purify us here this morning. In Jesus' name. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says, For I received the Lord also delivered to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night in which we drank and took bread. And so we do that in the same way here. We celebrate that way. We will send the plates out, and then they will come back. It's just a, it's a, there's nothing about that that makes it more spiritual than another way of doing it. It's just a way for us to be able to get the elements out to everyone. But in doing so, it gives you the time to be able to reflect on where you're at this morning. What type of review would you get before a Today. The bread and the body. 